Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. You've heard over the last number of days, I'm sure you have, lots of talk, you've read stuff in the paper, about this proposal that the Carmen's Group has brought forward. They want to investigate, put a quarter million dollars towards a study to see what actually has to be done with the entertainment venues in this city. First Ontario Centre, First Ontario Concert Hall and Hamilton Place and see what it would cost to either fix them or rebuild them or take them over. They want to manage them. They want to upgrade them. You heard Scott Warren on here, who's with the Carmen's Group, explaining all this the other day. The idea being, these places are getting run down. We need to make the city, the downtown of the city, a hub of entertainment again. And if we can do this without costing the city money, if we can make this private... And even if we let them build condos, the city gets a new arena, potentially a new concert hall and a new convention center doesn't cost anything. But an interesting piece came out of this in the last few days. And this is why we're talking about it again today, because Kitty Corner diagonal from First Ontario Centre, from Cops Coliseum, as you may know if you ever go downtown, is Sir John A. Macdonald High School. Sir John A. sits on what would be a valuable piece of property in downtown Hamilton. It is closing. The students from that school, along with the students from Delta, will soon be going to the new school that is being built right across from Tim Horton's field. That means Sir Johnny McDonald is going to be vacated, maybe knocked down, we don't really know. But the school board has said they're not going to be selling that property to the city. That they're going to they're going to hang on to that piece of property. Well, If you have a city plan and you decide you want to create this entertainment zone and you look at that piece of property on, in the city, in the area, and you say, yeah, you know, that, that would really make things work for us. What do you do if you're the city, if the school board won't sell, could the city force the school board to sell that piece of property? Well, there's where we get into an interesting discussion and there's where Al Burton comes in. Al is a partner with Thomas Rogers in Toronto. He's a lawyer. He specializes in municipal law, environmental approvals, land use planning and expropriation. And best of all, he was once upon a time, a lawyer who worked for the city of Hamilton. So he knows this area very well. He joins us now. Al, thanks for doing this today. Uh, Thanks for having me, Scott. I appreciate that. Just before we get into the nuts and bolts of this, and I don't know if this is an area of expertise for you, but just so we can sort of set the stage, the federal government is above the provincial government and can pull some strings with them, and the provincial government is above municipal governments and can have some impact on them. Where does the school board in general, do you know where it actually fits into the pecking order of this whole thing? Yeah, uh, Scott, I mean, the the school board uh, is regulated by the Education Act, Um, um, and so... That's regulated by the province, and in terms of uh, sort of a division of powers, if I can put it to you that way, uh, you've got the federal government, you've got uh, the provincial government, and you've got the provincial, uh, you've got municipal governments. Um, the school board is really a creature of creation um, of, of the province. All so, right. the, so the city would not have any power or jurisdiction over the school board, is why I'm asking this. They would be not in a position of, of strength over them. No, no, no. Vis-a-vis um, the question that you've asked, there's no, um, there's, no, there's no veto, if I can put it to you that way, uh, for the city versus uh, the school board. Okay, so we get so the reason I asked that is I just wanted to set the stage because this is not a position a, a spot where the city necessarily can just control what the school board does, even though we vote for them simultaneously in a municipal election. So if the city 
were to, and you heard my introduction, and I'm sure you've seen something about this as a former Hamilton lawyer, if the city decides this plan for the entertainment district is something that it wanted to to see happen, if it felt that it was really important or maybe even crucial for the de- redevelopment of the core, could the city in any way compel the school board to sell that piece of property to them? The answer to that, uh, Scott, is very very simple. Uh, yes, um, the municipality could expropriate uh, the lands from the school board. Now, in saying that, it is in fact subject to the approval of what is now known as the Local Planning Appeal Tribunal. It was formerly known as, of course, the Ontario Municipal Board. Uh, so some of your, your listeners may be more familiar with, with, with that uh, particular entity. But it, it, like I said, the, the, the board is now known as the Local Planning Appeal Tribunal. So it actually has been done uh, in, uh, in previous years. Uh, it was done in Ottawa uh, by, by the city of Ottawa. Um, versus uh, versus uh, one of the school boards in in Ottawa, um, it is not it is not something that is usual. Um, that was done in the 70s, um, so it's not certainly something that that uh, in my practice that I've I've, <laughs> I've seen on a regular basis by any stretch of the imagination. Um, and in fact, I'd say just on a practical basis, um, and I don't know you know what reasons that the school board uh it has suggested in this case that uh, uh it doesn't want to sell the property but the practical reality is that there will probably be some sort of a deal made um or there is certainly the potential for a deal to be made um whether that's the exchange of uh, certain other lands um, or, you know, uh, some other favorable terms. You said that it's not uh, unprecedented. It wouldn't be outrageous to think that the city could actually expropriate land, which I found a little bit surprising, to be honest, because as we started, that the school board is really an arm of the provincial government, so you'd have the city, I guess, expropriating from the province. That it's, It almost seems backwards. No, 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 Scott. All I said uh, previously was that the, the school board is a creation of the province. I see. It's, it's an arm. Yeah, okay. It's not, it's not an arm of the province by any stretch of the imagination. Okay. Uh, uh, just like municipalities are a creation of the province. Uh, so that's why they're, they're basically equal, if I can put it to you that way. Okay. Uh, uh, in terms of power, uh, and especially with, re- uh, with respect to the power to expropriate, uh, they, they equally, uh, if you turn the, the shoe on the other foot, uh, the school board could uh, subject, of course, to the approval uh, of the local planning appeal tribunal, could expropriate from the city. Uh, 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 <laughs> that, would, that would be interesting. We're going to expropriate your school property, and they turn around and expropriate City Hall. And now we're now. Well, <laughs> now, I, I don't no, expect. No, I'm just no, making be, fun, but yeah. To be to be fair, Scott, uh, you have to have a legitimate public purpose when you're exercising the power of expropriation. That's what I wanted to ask, Al, because what what is the criteria? Because we've had in this city in recent years, we've had a number of properties that were expropriated down in the West Harbor area when the new stadium was going to be built there. Now, it wasn't ultimately, but those properties were still expropriated. And we've had a number on the planned LRT route that's going to come in here. What, what criteria do you have to reach or what bar do you have to reach before you can kick that into gear? 
Well, uh, Scott, as I said a little bit earlier, what you have to have is a legitimate public purpose, and legitimate public purpose is broadly defined, uh, quite frankly. Uh, you know, it is things like the LRT, uh, stadiums, uh, public parks, other uh, municipal or other facilities as well. Um, so it is, it is as broad as... as a municipality or a school board or other expropriating authority can uh, can define that public purpose um, as long as it is a legitimate public purpose um, it will it will uh, the expropriating authority will have the authority to uh, take uh, whatever land. So you don't have to, say, rise to the level of essential in order for this thing to happen. The city would not have to make a case that we can't get by any longer without this property. It's lower no. than that. No, it's it's much it's much lower than that, uh, um, and I mean, you certainly cited the example of uh, taking some homes for uh, a project that was not ultimately built. It it's that's not the test. Uh, the test is at the time that the expropriating authority is uh, attempting to take uh, certain lands. Does it have a legitimate public purpose? And so, how do you? Uh, it, and again, I, it sounds like almost a very low threshold, really. I want, how, how, who do you have to establish that to, and have to you, how, how do you have to at least prove that we really have a desire then, let's say, for this because of something we want to do? Well, it, it, if you initiate proceedings under the Expropriations Act um, and somebody objects, um, and let's say, obviously in this particular case, um, the school board objects to uh, the proposed taking of, of its lands, the municipality uh, would have to appear before what's uh, called an inquiry officer um, or a hearing of necessity. It's, it's uh, really an independent officer who looks at um, the proposed taking and whether or not there's a legitimate purpose. Um, and that inquiry officer will hear from both sides um, and will determine uh, and the test the legal test is actually it's actually condensed to is the taking fair, sound, and reasonably necessary. That's the legal mm. test. So, so it is it is quite a low threshold um, uh, in terms of establishing a, a legitimate public pur- uh, purpose uh, to take lands. The other part about this, and we only have a minute or so left yeah. here. The other part of this is that when you mentioned that you heard about a case like this in Ottawa. Yeah. I would think that there are many people whose homes, and we saw it here in Hamilton, where their homes were going to be expropriated, they were not in a position to afford a well, a good lawyer like yourself to fight it. So basically you just make a settlement and away you go. If you were going to go after a, a piece of land owned by uh, the school board, they would have lawyers. This would be a lot more complicated though, potentially to make happen. It could be, but you have to remember, Scott, that the Expropriations Act, and unfortunately a lot of people are misinformed uh, about the costs of uh, affording services uh, like, like I offer, like others offer. Um, uh, and under the Expropriations Act, uh, depending on certain circumstances, uh, but in most circumstances, the costs are generally paid by the expropriating authority, and, and when I say the cost, the legal costs, um, there's appraisal costs, there, there may be some other professional costs actually incurred as well. 
Um, and so those costs are generally uh, paid by the expropriating authority. And, and the reason for that is quite simple. Uh, the taking of one's land uh, is an extraordinary exercise of government power. And so to the best extent that the Expropriations Act can, it tilts the balance uh, in favor of the landowner in order to get appropriate advice uh, to receive appropriate compensation. Alberton, partner with Thomas Rogers in Toronto. If you need some help with expropriation, he's the man to go see. Really appreciate the time today. Thank you for this. You're very welcome, Scott. Thank you. It's an interesting idea. We're not at the expropriation level, even remotely yet, but it just got me thinking today. Could the city ever go after a school board and say, we're taking that land, we're making our project work there? We're so far away from it, but I just thought it was a fascinating topic. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. It is time for a little something we do occasionally called Will's Story of the Day. Will is on the other side of the glass. Will's the guy making the music go and pressing all the buttons to answer the phones and everything. Here's what we do. I have gathered up three of the most unusual stories from around the globe. I will give you the pricey version of them, and Will gets to choose which one is his story of the day. You can play along at home. Which one would be yours if you were in Will's seat? Here is story number one. This comes to us from Sanford, Florida. Police were chasing a white SUV with a woman driving the driving the SUV. She was she was a, a running from the law. When they threw down on the road the stop sticks, they call them, the spike belt, you know, what they, they, the police throw this thing and it's a bunch yeah. of nails and all of a sudden you drive over it and your tires burst and your car is not drivable. So anyway, they throw this down. Her car is no longer drivable. She gets out of the car. Now, this is in the middle of the night, by the way. She gets out of the car. And she was a ghost the whole time? And she takes off on foot into a farmer's field oh. where she essentially disappears into the night. But for two lucky things. One is the police have a helicopter with night vision goggles or night vision equipment, which is not perfect, but you can pick up heat, I guess, from someone. So she was slightly visible on their monitor. Yeah. That was the first good piece of luck. But the bad piece of luck for the woman is this farmer's field, it was a cattle farmer, his field. And for reasons that nobody quite understands, a group of 20 cows became interested in her and began stampeding after her, following her as she ran across the field. Oh, no. So the police were now able to follow her because she all they had to do was follow this large herd of cattle. Oh, my. <laughs> that was chasing. So the, cows. The cows became the crime fighters. Uh, the <laughs> police eventually found cocaine and needles and other stuff. Um and a bunch of cattle that uh, they should all be given a medal for their uh, for their service. But yes, I would like to see that. the The cattle were the saviors in this one. They found the criminal and were able to pull her in. Story number two. Now, this is a story from about a week and a half ago. So some of you may have heard this, but this is one of my. This is a story that caught my eye right away. Comes to us from Germany, where the managers of a German nursing home were in a panic the other night because two of their elderly patients slash clients were missing. They could not find them. They had somehow slipped out of the home. And these are elderly gentlemen who I guess have a little bit of memory issues. And these two guys were missing. So the all out search for these two guys was on. Okay. Well, they found them. Uh Uh-huh. They found them 25 miles away at the Wacken Open Air Festival, which is described as the biggest metal festival in the world. Yes. 
the 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 festival was featuring Donzig, Judas Priest, Cannibal Corpse, Hatebred, In Flames, Arch Enemy, and Eskimo Callboy. <laughs> These two old guys were banging heads to metal music with 75,000 metal heads. Oh, my gosh. Uh, they were disoriented and dazed, it says, but they were found and they were fine, and they were apparently very disappointed when they were rounded up and thrown into a taxi or led to a taxi and taken home because they wanted to stick around for more heavy metal music. Yeah, right on, guys. Right Doesn't, on. I don't think it says here how old they were, uh, but the festival, Wacken Open Air, sent out... Uh, well, you're never too old to rock. <laughs> so that is story number two. So you've got the woman That's... who was corralled by cows, the criminal who was found by cows, the two old guys who were found at a heavy metal festival. And story number three comes to us from, where are we here? From uh, New Hampshire. A guy shows up at a Planet Fitness gym. Oh, no. And um, he immediately... Walks in, puts his bag down, and walks over to a yoga mat where he begins working out. However, however, Eric, the protagonist of our play here, uh, Eric apparently thought this was a clothing optional facility. So Eric had taken off all his clothes and by... By the story says, when police officers arrived, they found Eric in his birthday suit in a yoga-type position. Oh, Eric. Why? Why did you think this? Um, some, quote, some of the comments some witnesses gave were they felt uncomfortable, disgusted, sick, and unsafe. There were more witnesses coming forward than we could take names. <laughs> I'm trying to picture which yoga-type pose he might have been in, and really... That, by that description, none of them would be good. None of them would be good. If you're behind old Eric and he's in like a downward dog or something, <laughs> you're seeing parts of Eric that no one should see, save for maybe his you know, wife or whomever, but uh, his special person. Uh, he has been arrested. He was charged with indecent exposure, lewdness, and disorderly conduct for his nude yoga exercises at the very, very clothed gym, by the way. They they have stressed they are a fully clothed facility. I feel like that is something he knew beforehand. Well, maybe, maybe not, but either way, he's going to have to explain that to a judge. So your stories today for Will's story of the day. Is it the woman who was corralled by a herd of cattle <laughs> while she was escaping from police? Is it the two aging headbangers at the Wacken Head Heavy Metal Festival in Germany? Or is it the nude guy in the downward dog position who was arrested for indecent exposure in the gym? I must say the headbanging uh, youthful elderly men is incredibly charming, but I think I gotta go with the cattle heroes. The cattle heroes? I gotta go with the cattle heroes, and I hope they all do get medals. They, I, they will all be given medals as they are on their way to being turned into no, steak. No. But we'll give them one last moment. We'll pin a pin to their a medal to their chest and send them off happy and heroic. Oh. Maybe maybe we give them a, a a pass on that. Maybe they get to live now, live out their days as crime fighters. <laughs> not steak. 
You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, let me uh, bring in a guy who he, he almost got lost actually coming in. It's been so long since he's been in studio. A very familiar name, familiar face, familiar voice to everyone in Hamilton. Bubba O'Neill from CHCH. How are you, man? It, it is quite a different look around this place. It's I all mean, painted. I, and... Yeah, it's a totally different feel. Even inside here, it's such a different feel. And uh, But the same old friendly faces, I will say that. friendly faces. Which is a happy thing. Hey, just before you came in, there was a tweet that came out, and this one made my day today. Uh, this is from the Montreal Alouettes. The Montreal Alouettes have added defensive backs Tavon Campbell. No big deal. But the other guy they've added to their roster, immediately the best name in the CFL. Armageddon Drawn. What? They have added... <laughs> Our defensive back, Armageddon Drawn. From where? Well, he's an import. He's an international. I'll have to look up where he's from. Never heard that name before. Armageddon Drawn. Who scouted him? Who named him? (laughs) His mom was reading Revelation one day, and then all of a sudden she started having labor pains, and she got into the part of the Bible where it was, uh, was getting dicey, and then all of a sudden she goes, Armageddon's the boy's name. Perhaps they were at that same event that Max Yasker was hosting. Uh, that could have been, although I don't think there was anyone named Armageddon at that <laughs> particular event, but uh, that is a name. That is an awesome name. There are some great names in football. That one is right up there. That, that along with uh, He Hate Me. He Hate Me. Oh, yeah, from the XFL. Yeah. The XFL. <laughs> now, I wasn't going to bring this up, except I saw this today, and I, I want to talk about football with you for a couple of minutes, in, in a couple of minutes. But just, and I'm going to ask you something that you may, you may be uncomfortable talking about. And I'll understand that, but I'm going to throw it out anyway. I was watching a video today of the, uh, who's the new Blue Jays catcher, the big prospect? Uh, Jansen. Thank you. Hit his first home run. Mm -hmm. Called by the Blue Jays play-by-play announcing team. Is there a more ludicrous, ridiculous, please stop it right now call in sports than, get up, ball! Get up, ball! (laughs) That every time that is said on the Blue Jays broadcast, that announcer should be fined a million dollars. That is the worst call in sports. Am I wrong? Yeah, you know, it, it's tough because obviously it's a former uh, manager, uh, you know, uh, former a well player. A former player, well known broadcaster, also with ESPN. Would Buck teams up with Dan Schulman, and it seems one of the better duos in in the sport. But yeah, I'm I'm I don't know if I'm uncomfortable with it, but I feel like there is more. There should be more to it. It, it. I guess it's original, but it also makes me think that I know uh, there's a a sort of an industry. Uh, website and publication called Awful Announcing. Okay. And it also makes me wonder why the Blue Jays broadcast is generally, I mean, I guess there's 32 teams in the league. They're generally, for the last four or five years, 30 to 32. Buck Martinez is a good broadcaster. People don't necessarily like him. He's he's a good broadcaster. As you say, EA Sports with their baseball games, their video games have used him many times. Buck Martinez, I'm not dumping on Buck Martinez. He's a good broadcaster. But whoever told him that you need to create the world's most homerish, amateurish call for every stinking home run was drinking. There's no other explanation for that one. Here's my take, and you know people can take it for what it's worth. And I think when you listen to the ESPN broadcast, and you'll hear it in the postseason, because he generally teams up with Dan Schulman. To me, Dan Schulman with the play-by-play and Buck Martinez as the color. 
That's where Buck, that's where Buck shines to me. I as the lead voice, as the play-by-play guy, then you get get up, get out of here. <laughs> that, get up, Paul, get up, get out of here. No, no, no. <laughs> No, you're allowed to be somewhat Homerish on the call. For that sure, is for just sure. that is uh, every time. And I saw I saw this highlight today, and it reminded me again because you've got a kid who hits a home run, and to me, it's the moment is ruined by that call. The funny thing about the sorry to interrupt yeah, there. No, the funny no. thing about that uh, that home run to the, the, the it wasn't his call wasn't necessary. No, that was such a no doubt home run that it didn't need that little extra push it that went he was forty five feet <laughs> past the wall. It's, yeah, and even and even his little push like. Uh, anyway, let's move on because this this uh, again. I'm not I, Buck Martinez has his moments where he's very 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 good. This to me just brings the whole thing down. Anyway, I want to ask you about this because lately in the news in the last few weeks, especially although we've seen it for a long long time, uh, we've had stories of football coaches getting in trouble. And today there's a story about Michigan with one of their coaches being accused of bully coaching. Bully coaching. Uh, Ohio State is in a situation. We've got what I don't understand, Bubba, and you you've covered football for a long time. I can't think of a football coach. Mark Tressman may be the guy if there is one, but I can't think of too many football coaches that aren't screamers on the field that aren't yellers and screamers and thinking of themselves as military drill sergeants. And I'm not entirely sure why that is. Why is that the style that everybody seems to think if you're a football coach, you must be the loudest, screamingest, most militaristic guy. Why could you not coach in a quiet, and I'm not talking about being rubbing their back and patting them on the head and giving them a kiss good night, but there's, there's got to be somewhere between the chaos that a lot of these guys coach with and the other alternative. Uh, I think there's uh, two schools of thought that football is in, in terms of the coaching and that the most effective coaches are the old school coaches, and those are the ones that you know strike fear into the players. Um, and you're right about that sort of yelling style. I mean, we're hearing guys like John Gruden, who has not coached for, I think, 15 years, is back with the Oakland Raiders, and that players don't like his sort of, quote, 1960s, 1970s style, his sort of military attitude that that's what we're running here. And it's funny because you're, I think what you're getting is play, coaches like that can get away with it in the college ranks, the high school ranks, because there's no... There can be no backlash from the players, or you're gone. Right. There's no players association. There's no gaming, uh, ganging up of players against a coach. It just doesn't happen. In college, happen. you can't even demand a trade because then you have to sit out a year if you Absolutely. transfer. Absolutely. So you're at the whole, and you've probably been brought in from that coaching staff as a recruitment, mm-hmm. as a part of a recruitment. So you lose your free schooling. You lose everything. So you are really in the palm of the hands of the coach. And I think that's why that attitude still really exists in that, in that level of foot, in those two levels of football. The professionals, I don't think it happens as much because you have a players association and we've seen it it's happened players have all out ganged up against coaches and won't play for them and try, sometimes try to get them fired but even if it's not the head coach if you go to a football practice if yep. you go to a training camp even if it's not the head coach who's doing the yelling and screaming the position coaches sure are, absolutely they're never saying bubba okay here's what i want from your position like it's rare to see a guy 
not at full volume. And I just don't understand the thinking about that old school. Because again, the player, the coaches and the assistant coaches really can, can I mean, because they are operating at a, a quote, quite lower level. They're sometimes, the, I, I hate to use this word, they're the hitmen for the head coach in many ways. So they can get away with that kind of attitude. Also, it goes broader than that, Scott. Football is the only fo- sport, one of the only sports, I should say, that's not like the NBA, not like the National Hockey League, not like even Major League Baseball, where you have contracts that are guaranteed. Not you, guaranteed. You, not guaranteed. Yeah. You can be cut at the second. And a lot of these guys come from, as we well know in the United States, come from smaller communities, lesser earning communities, sometimes inner cities, and their dream is to play football. And you need to, you can, and the player, the coaches again have the players at the, in the but palm of their hand. That, shouldn't that go the other way then, that if a player knows that he can be cut at the drop of a hat, you shouldn't necessarily need a coach in your ear screaming at you t- all through practice because, look, if you don't want to work, I'll get, I don't have to scream. I don't have to make myself hoarse. If you don't want to work, I'll find somebody else. That, to me, would be the argument that would say... But you want to push them to the man, limits. You want to push, push, push right to the limit of the, uh, of, of the, uh, the athletic ability, the mind ability, the execution ability of each one of these athletes. And that is, I think, as I said, it is these assistant coach, which is the sort of vein of the head coach, to push these guys to the absolute limit to get them to execute at a level that they're satisfied with. Does Mike Babcock not want the absolute limit of his players' excellence? I he, would, I've been to many... He yells. Pap- he yells and he pushes these guys. And you're also... I think it's becoming the, it, it, sort of the love, I'm going to call it the love end of Mike Babcock, it's sort of come to an end, and this is why this year is so important, I think, for this hockey team, and I think in terms of his coaching career, you're starting to see some kickback from players against Mike Babcock, that they don't like him. Um, there's been much reported um, sort of, uh, I don't know if it's a disagreement or whatever it is between uh, the star player and Austin Matthews and the head coach, so much so that the head coach had to make, make a trip at the end of the season down to Arizona to make sure that everything's okay. We have so much, and the reason I bring this thing up is, is A, because of the stories we've been hearing about the coaches and the trouble that some of them are getting in because of the way that they've been behaving on the field allegedly. But the other part is we've been seeing teams for decades now spend tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars on sports psychologists to try and get their players to perform. And we know... That in the CHCH studio or with your staff at CHCH News, there are, I'm sure, are people who will play, who will perform better if they are pushed, and others who will perform better if they are stroked a little bit. If they are told they don't need to be pushed, you say, Great job, they will run through a wall. You say, Man, that wasn't up to your usual thing. They're not going to run through a wall, they're just going to sag. We have people who respond to different things, and yet in the coaching ranks, we seem to have the coaches that no one seems to have told them, maybe you should treat different guys slightly differently. Maybe that guy's not going to respond to just being yelled at every single practice, and that guy will. It seems like it's almost wasting the money they're spending on some of this stuff. Old, old school thinking. The sport, the, the sport is sort of old school in that in that aspect. And, and you're right, though. Um, and I'll keep going back to this. In the college ranks where these, these these guys, I mean, really, the players are at the heat of the coaches. I mean, so much so. I mean, we had that incident at the University of Maryland with a player that dropped. Died. D- died, right? And there are stories coming out about the head coach and his assistant coaches 
um, and I, I'll use the word that you use there, bullying their players to the ox, ops, again, trying to push them to the absolute limit. It's what, 80, 90, 100 degrees during these training camps. They're practicing for hours upon hours. Some of them, I guess, in terms of hydration, there are issues. Uh, again, I, I'm not going to get into the actual details of why this kid dropped, but this there are stories. Oh, we saw coming with up. the Vikings years ago with Corey Stringer. Uh, absolutely, or, you is know, that what his name? Corey another Stringer? Corey Stringer, yeah. uh, an offensive lineman. Uh, I think there was a story not a lot, uh, maybe a month ago, about a player at the University of Maine who had a heart problem and he dropped dead at, 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 at a little after practice. But see, pushing guys, running you know? hard practices, and pushing guys yeah. to me is one thing. I mean, we can expect if you're being paid millions of dollars, we can expect that you are going to work hard and that you are going to be pushed hard to be the best. Again, I I just came to this when you start hearing about bullying and all these things. And, you know, I look, I, the definition of bullying in our society, I think, is misconstrued at times. There is real bullying. There is legitimate real bullying. And there is criticism that people do. In, are now labeling as bullying. There are two different things. One is real bullying. One is criticism. I'm not sure what it is in the case of football, but but is it not a football? Because there, I mean, and I'll keep say using the word old school. There's this old school thought of what a football player is, and that the guy that gets up and gets knocked down, gets back up, and, and continues and doesn't complain, does the job, does it for the team, does it for the team at all cost. And this, I think this is where it all comes from. And it's an old school thought of what a football player really is. Now, I know that this is not indicative of every single coach, but have you watched the Netflix series Last Chance You? No, I'm not. Okay, Last Chance You. It's into its third season now. It's at a new school, but the first two were at this junior college in the States, which was literally for guys that had behavior issues, got kicked out of their universities. They went to this junior college. They were very good football players. But they couldn't stay at their, and they were trying to get back to university, but they're playing here. And their coach, there was not a, a second almost of practice that he was not berating these kids, screaming, yelling, obscenities, flying, everything. And now they're in a new school and it's the exact same. Now, I don't, I'm not suggesting every single coach is like this, but it, boy, it seems like it's hard to find the one who isn't. And I say, Mark Tressman seems like a guy that, He's not screaming all through practice. But then I look at him and I go, wait, I know he didn't do well in the NFL, but in the CFL, he's a so He actually did. I mean, he, he did he, okay. He, he did I mean, okay. He coached for 20 years in the NFL. No, but I'm saying as, his head coach was as a Chicago head coach, sure, last year. Sure, 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 As a head coach, yes, yes, he, yes. But in the CFL, he's a cerebral guy. He's had Very. great success. He's yep. a, he understands the game. And if if he can get through to his players without peeling the paint off the walls all the time, I wonder why no one else does it. And here's the other thing. I bet you there are times when Mark Tressman does go into the room and peel the paint off the walls. Sure. And you want to know something? When he goes in there and does it, I guarantee you, because it's not all the time. Fear of God. They listen. When, when Mark Tressman starts yelling, you know you better be listening because it doesn't happen very often. It was the same. Marcel Belfay, when he was with the Cats, he's oh, a Christian yeah, that's man. that's right. That's right. Doesn't swear. Yeah. Does not swear. That's just who he is. The... Very, very few times that Marcel Belfay let a bad word go, the players went, ooh, absolutely, better pay attention. He's mad. Well, on the opposite side, uh, to speak to be current here, we just had a situation. I just read a story um, in the Edmonton Sun, I believe, about Jason Moss uh, apologizing to the media about his behavior and the fact that it's translated to his players. He had an absolute meltdown on Friday night 
um, basically had a war with a Gatorade machine after a call that he didn't get. While the Edmonton Eskimos were winning a game, and let's just say the Gatorade bottle won, the Gatorade uh, machine lost. Conti- well, no, it won. Oh, it won. <laughs> it won, and and he had an absolute meltdown. I know this is not the first time Jason Moss has gone. I've seen, we, he, there are incidents of him yelling at his assistant coaches, obviously yelling at players. I go back to a time when he was here as a Hamilton Tiger Cat. I know I had an incident with him where it, it was just an all-out assault. I mean, the team was like one and seven, and I asked him a question about <laughs> the team turning around. And he, I mean, and I don't know if it was a so much at me. It, it wasn't so much right at me, but it was alongside the media, basically, and us, you know, being hard on the team and all this kind of. We have seen him. So uh, he's all gone up. And to, to add to that, for the entire time he's been the head coach of the Edmonton Eskimos, they've been the most penalized team. Mm. Look, I, I I would find it fascinating to see a couple more coaches. I I don't want people. I'm not I'm not taking the position that I want football players to be treated with kid gloves or oh you know it's too hard a sport. Let's just as I say, let's give them a popsicle every five minutes and <laughs> and call them by their pet names and no I, look you can be pushing these guys. They are professional athletes and in, in NCAA schools and it's U sports in Canada. I mean, these are guys who want to get better. They want to be pushed. So I'm not saying don't be uh, be softening up to the point of being ridiculous, but I just I, I find it fascinating that every coach, almost 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 every coach, seems to coach exactly the same way, and very few seem to be ever thinking we're willing to look at analytics for a different way to do football, but we're not willing to look at any possibility that there might be a different or a better way to coach football. I find that fascinating. Because we're hockey, we're all into analytics. Baseball's gone bonkers with the numbers, uh, the shift and everything else. If everything else in your sport can be adjusted to do something better, why do we coach exactly the same as we did when, I was going to say Lou Ferrigno, um, (laughs) what's his name, with Green Bay? uh, oh, Vince Lombardi. Uh, thank, thank you. I just have an you know, Not Lou Ferrigno. He was the Incredible Hulk. But when Vince Lombardi was coaching, we're doing things the same way as a coach. It's it's very strange to me that we're doing it the same. Yeah, I, I think, Scott, as long as football has that sort of macho tag along with it, 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 it this might continue. Do you think that anyone's going to be screaming at Armageddon drawn? <laughs> I, well, I, I, I'm, I'm so desperate now. To, to find a picture of this guy and see if he looks like he sounds. But, well, Mike Sherman, he actually is in that sort of cerebral style of coaching as well, too. Maybe that's why that team Unless is not so good. Except, <laughs> for the, except when he has to take his headset off. <laughs> that's right. Did you see Which that is, video? Yeah, I mean, I mean, they're one and only victory. <laughs> and he, actually, could, he couldn't get out of his headset. Uh, it took him a good 45 seconds to t- get that he thing off his head. He was all tangled up in this thing. And uh, yes, it, was, it actually... Okay, let's see. You know what? Armageddon drawn. He... Looks like, is this him? He's uh, a big man. He's a big man, but he looks just like a, oh, that's not him. Uh, oh, there he is. He, he just looks like a nice guy. Looks like a, a big but friendly fellow. Maybe maybe that's why he's in the CFL. He needs to have his fire ignited. Maybe that's it. But Ar- <laughs> I mean, with the name Armageddon. <laughs> I should go through the list. You know, next time we talk, maybe we'll, um, <laughs> we'll pull up the list. Sports Illustrated, I'm going to use it in my column on Saturday. Sports Illustrated. I came up with their list of the best names in college football this year. And Armageddon Drawn would fit right in there Absolutely. very nicely. There are some names in college football that are just absolutely 
amazing. I just don't know where where would Armageddon come from? Like, I mean, was there a grandfather, a great grandfather? Armageddon too. You know, like yeah, really, I really really liked the movie, and I said I would name my firstborn after this movie. Like, where would this come from? Uh, let me just. It's see. a very strange name. Uh, is it French? Is it uh, is it Dutch? You know, is it Japanese? Like, where does this come? It's not English. Uh, no, I would not think. And I'm just, <laughs> I'm drawing a complete, I'm sorry, I'm typing here, trying to find the list. I can't find the list. We will do it next time because it is, um, there are some terrific names. But yeah, Armageddon, no, guaranteed, his mom was reading the Bible around the time that, uh, or, or watching that movie with Bruce Willis. <laughs> There's no other explanation, I don't think. It's one of the two. Anyway, we never even got around to when it will be that the Blue Jays will become competitive again in a division with the Red Sox and oh. the Yankees, but I'm thinking uh, the third number in the year might begin with a three. It's going to be a while. And the Yankees and, and Red Sox are young. They're good. They're young. They're willing to spend money. They're that's, young. That's the great point. They're going to be around for a while. They're young. They, is that the Red Sox and the Yankees? People, you know, people don't really recognize that because you tend to look right at the, the the older veteran stars. But they took uh, their time in building the Yankees, especially because remember the Yankees didn't have a couple of good years. In fact, you know, they fired Joe Girardi, didn't come back. They had a couple of bad years, but in that time, uh, the general manager Cashman stripped down the team, and he did it very quickly. Uh, didn't really say the word rebuild. Guys like you know, like Aaron Judge. Then you spend a little money, and guys get, get guys get you know, like Sanchez was a young player, you know, catcher. Uh, you you spend some money and get uh, Giancarlo Stanton. Now all of a sudden, some of these young pitchers are blossoming. They're young, and as you said, it's going to be a while that until they go into the tank, and the Red Sox are even younger. Yeah, I mean, you're right. I mean, and everyone talks about the Blue Jays, and I know everyone in that uh, Rogers building are saying, well, we've, you know, we have the third best uh, young up and coming players by Baseball America, blah, blah, blah. But it's going to take a long time, Scott. We had those two, fifth, 14 and 15. 15 and 16, yeah. They, they were, they were, they, they came close. But it may be another 15, 10 to 15 years before that team, you know, gets that close ever again. All right, we've got uh, we've got about a minute, so let's go through. I found this thing. Some of the best names in college <laughs> football this year. We can't do the complete list. Uh, Zadok Dinkelman, he's a good one. Uh, Bumper Pool, come on, Bumper Pool. Uh, Georquarius Spivey, <laughs> what? <laughs> Legend Moore, that's a good one. Um, let us go down here. Uh, Hassan Hippolyte. <laughs> a Colson Yankoff. Come on. I'm not making this up. Hamp Sisson. I love that first name, Hamp. Hamp. I would call my kid Hamp, Hamp if I had another kid and we were born in Arkansas. <laughs> He'd be Hamp. Hey, Hamp. Um, Rashad Wild Goose Jr. <laughs> Junior. Junior. <laughs> Junior. Uh, oh, we'll leave it with this. The twin brothers who are now playing college football, Shockey and Rocky Jacques-Louis. <laughs> Mom came up with Shockey and Rocky as the names of her two boys to go with. Don't these parents care about their children? No, clearly not. Knowledge Smith, I said last one. Uh, Quinshawn Luscious, Jez Lord Boateng, and um, 
I can't even pronounce that one. There must be some meaning to these names that we just have no clue about, Scott. There has to be. There has to. And Sibo, C apostrophe B-O, Sibo Flemister. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't there a CeeLo out there? Yeah, but he may be his brother. (laughs) Bob O'Neill, thanks for coming in today. Really appreciate it. Thanks for stopping by. You got to come in here again before the next five years roll through. Ah, Always a pleasure. Great to talk some sports with you. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML.